invitation, our, our time of response today will be coming to the table together. But in order to come to this table, we need to first understand what it's about, what it represents. And so we're going to look at that as we look at this text. That the invitation will be here at the end of the service for all who are confessing followers of Jesus Christ to examine yourselves, to be repentant, and to receive the Lord's Supper with us. If you're not a confessing follower of Christ, we invite you simply to observe during that time. That I hope that God will prepare our hearts to come to this table as we walk through this word together and learn about this consequence of sin. And so we'll start there with the first point in your outline. Well, what do we learn about sin here? We learn that our sin separates us from God. Our sin separates us from God. That there's a familiar phrase for many of us from the book of Exodus. Uh, one that's usually kind of frozen in our minds. It's that, it's that encounter where Moses comes before Pharaoh and shares that word from God. And what does he say? Let my people go. What we see the Hebrews, the Israelites, referred to over and over again in the book of Exodus by God as my people. They're not Pharaoh's people. They're not Moses' people. They're God's people. Now, that's the reference that there's, that's there over and over again. But then something changes. We see how when God is on the mountain and He invites Moses up to the mountain, that the people sin and rebel against God. And when they do this, they are breaking the covenant with God. God made that covenant with them. The Ten Commandments, He says... They should have no other gods before Him. They should make no graven images, no idols. They shouldn't take His name in vain. And yet we see how they break those very things. So symbolically, as Moses comes down the mountain with those tablets, with the covenant, He slams them to the ground, not out of anger, but to show the people, this is what you're doing. You're breaking your covenant with God. And now that we see the sin on behalf of the people, we see how that corrupts man's fellowship with God. So God, in His references to the people, now He's not saying my people, He's saying Moses, the people, your people. In fact, the reference we see here in Exodus 32 and 33 and 34, they are called a stiff-necked people. And we've talked about how that's a reference to a stubborn farm animal. You might think about the common phrase, they're, they're stubborn as a mule. <laughs> that's not a compliment, by the way. <laughs> well, when we call someone stubborn as a mule, what are we saying? We're saying they're obstinate. They're, 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 they're determined. They're, they won't listen to anybody else. They're, they're committed to this path, even if it's going to lead to their destruction. That they're so confident in themselves, they're so set in their ways, they won't listen to anybody else. But what does God mean when He says they're a stiff-necked people? Well, that very thing. That they won't listen to their Master, they won't obey His Word, and so no longer does God refer to them as His people. In fact, throughout the rest of the book of Exodus, you won't hear God call them His people anymore. You'll, you'll see phrases like the one here, where He says to Moses, the people whom you, Moses, you brought out of the land of Egypt. Now, now, Moses and God both know God's the one who led them out. Moses was the deliverer, but God's making a point here. He's saying that the people's sin has affected their relationship with me. And so he gives Moses this word, and notice what he says to them. He says, Moses, it's time to leave the mountain. It's time to continue the journey towards the promised land. Well, that's good news, isn't it? 
The, the people have been in camp there for months now. They've received the word from God. They've sinned against God. This plague has come upon them. But now God says, okay, it's time to go towards that land, that land I promised you, that land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that, that, that's good news. God says He's going to keep the promise He made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He even says He's going to send an angel before them that He's going to drive out all the inhabitants of the land. That, that's good news. The land flowing with milk and honey. Well, that, that, that's good news. But then notice what he says in verse 3. But I will not go up among you. Well, that's not good news. That's devastating news. Well, why does God say this? Why does God tell the people, I'm going to take you there, I'm going to get you there, I'm going to send an angel before you, I'm going to do all things I promised to do, but I'm not going to go with you. One commentator says it this way, the problem, of course, was Israel's sin. The Israelites were covenant lawbreakers, or as God so aptly put it, a stiff-necked people. Like a farm animal that stubbornly refuses to shoulder the plow, the Israelites would not wear the yoke of obedience to God. And under these circumstances, God would not go with them. And this was for their own protection. At any moment, He might have to judge them for their sin, and then they would perish. See, we see God here is, is showing what God consistently shows, that, that God is all of His attributes at one. He doesn't sacrifice part of His character to display the other part. So, so what God does here is loving and what God does here is just. God doesn't put His love on hold in order to be just. He doesn't put His justice on hold in order to be loving. He, he's a man. No. He's God. When we think of men, we think of man, we think of how we often will we'll display maybe one characteristic other than another. We'll refer to ourselves as, well, well they're just being like this right now. Well, this is a real show of, of this right now. No, God is no man. God is God. God is all of His attributes at once. And so God here in His perfect love, in His perfect justice, and being a God who keeps His word and His promises, He tells the people He's going to do what He said He's going to do, but their sin has a consequence. It has an effect. And those two things we see here about that. One, we see... That, that sin separates us from God. Well, we're reminded of this from the fall itself. There in the garden, what does God do? God in His love and in His justice, He removes Adam and Eve from the garden. He puts a flaming sword there. He says, you can't come back in. Why does God do that? Because friends, if God allowed Adam and Eve to stay in the garden, that flaming sword would have come down on them. Do you realize that when God separates man because of their sin, this is a loving thing for God to do? I have made the false reference at times, I've heard the false reference at times, that, that, that hell is eternal separation from God. But that's not actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that hell is suffering the eternal wrath of God. That God in His grace right now 
allows man to be separate because of their sin. And if he's not separate from them, he's going to consume them. We see God's grace in the garden. We see God's grace here. God tells His people, if I stay there with you, if my presence is with you, I'm going to have to consume you and destroy you. So I'm going to put a, a separation here. Because of your sin. Least I consume you. Why? In hopes that they might come to repentance. You think about our context today and people today maybe you encounter and you think, man, why is, why is God allowing them to do that? Why is God allowing such wickedness, such evil? He'll allow it for a time. But there will be a consequence. We see here that, that sin, out of God's justice and God's love, it separates us from God. Romans 3.23, for, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That, that, that verse is not saying that God is the standard of perfection and we can try really hard, but we can never quite match that standard. You know, it's not, it's not like you and I watching maybe the the Olympics or some athlete and thinking, well, I, I could work really hard, I could try really hard, but I'm never going to be quite as good as that person. They're, they're excellent. They're professional. Now what we see is that when we become aware of our sin, we realize there's an enormous gap between us and God, and we can't overcome that in our efforts. That God's allowing that barrier there that He might not consume us, but one day, friends, that barrier's gone. And that wrath comes. And so in God's love, in God's justice, we see Isaiah 59. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that He cannot save, for His ear dull that He cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your, you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So, so what we see here is not that man's sin, Israel's sin, somehow now affects the omnipresence of God. He can't be all places at all times. Now, now that's affected. He can't be with God's people when we go to the promised land. No. We, we see that because of man's sin, God has put this separation there. But notice what else we see. We see that even though the people are separated from God, God's still going to take them into the promised land. He's still going to do what He promised He would do. So think about what He says to God's people. To the people. He says to them, I'm still going to give you the land of promise. I'm still going to send an angel before you to conquer your enemies. I'm still going to take you to the place I told you I was going to take you. But I'm not going to go with you. Now think about that offer for a second. God is essentially saying to the people this, you can have my blessing and you can have my stuff, but you can't have me. And be honest with yourself for a second. What if God were to make that offer to you today? How would you respond? Well, what if the offer on the table before us today was, okay, we can have all the blessings of God well, we can have all these things we're praying for, but, but we can't have a relationship with God. Well, we can't know God through His Word. We can't call out to God in prayer. He, he's going to do all these things He promised He would do, but, but we can't have a day-to-day -day relationship with Him where we're not going to be convicted of sin or repent of sin. In essence, we can just kind of live how we want and God's still going to bless us. 
Now, we all know the right answer to that is, well, no, we shouldn't want that. But think about it for a second. Friends, that, that, practically speaking, that's exactly what many of us want. But we don't want somebody telling us how to live. We don't want somebody telling us how to, how to do things. But we want God to bless us. I mean, think of the culture we live in. When, when a crisis hits, the first response is not, oh, is there sin in my life? Do I need to repent of something? It's no. Well, just, just pray, and I hope God fixes this. Or, or God, would you do this? Or God, would you give me this? There, there, there's no desire so often for, for any repentance. There's no fruit of repentance. There's no desire there evident of wanting to have a personal relationship with God. We are a people who want God's stuff, but we don't want Him. And yet here we see in the text uh, people who so miserably get so many things wrong, they finally get something right. Because notice their response to God when He makes this offer to them. Verse 4. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. See, the people were drawn to conviction. That they came to an awareness of their sin, and that awareness led them to repentance. Friends, that's exactly what awareness of sin should do for us. It's the second point there in your outline. Awareness of sin should lead to our repentance. Notice the response here. Moses mentions this twice in a few short verses. That in response to hearing this word, this disastrous word, the people mourned. And notice how they responded. The text tells us twice here that they took out their ornaments. They, they didn't wear their ornaments. <laughs> now you hear that and you might think, well, ornaments? Christmas trees or something? What are you talking about? Ornaments. Well, this was jewelry. These were earrings. These were things they would adorn themselves with. These were the very things, again, that when they were leaving the land of slavery on their way out, God, through His miraculous hand and miraculous works, He just had the people of Egypt handing over their wealth to the Israelites on their way out, on their way to the promised land. And so they're getting all this gold and all these, these material things, and, and they're, 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 they're ornate. They're the very things that we saw just a few verses ago they were bringing before Aaron. They were taking, as you remember from the text, they were taking the earrings out of their family's ears. They were taking them before Aaron and they said, Here, fashion for us a God we can worship. So why take the jewelry out now? Well, first of all, because God told them to. He says, say to Israel, you're a stiff-necked people. I'll consume you if I'm among you, so take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. God says to the people, all right, I need to know what to do with you. How are you willing to respond to my word? What God is saying to the people, I believe, is this. The very thing you used to break your covenant with me, the very thing you used to sin so greatly against me, I want you to get rid of it. Listen, there's nothing innately evil about the gold itself. It's what the people use the gold for. 
Remember, they were to use it for the glory of God ultimately, but they used it, it existed as a temptation for them to sin against God. So God here says, listen, if you're really repentant, show me some fruits. Friend, ask yourself this question today. Is there any genuine fruit of repentance in your life? What have you gotten rid of? Well, what have you just thrown out to the garbage? Well, what have you turned away from? Who have you gotten away from? What have you gotten rid of? What do you need to turn off, turn away from, walk the other way? Have you done that? Because friends, that's the evidence of genuine repentance. Walk in this aisle, getting wet in the baptistry, those may be outward signs of obedience, but the genuine fruit of repentance is your life looks different. And I fear in the church of Jesus Christ today, we are starving for fruit. And we are a people so often where there is no discernible difference in our lives than the world around us. We all, depending on where you live, you have a trash day. You know what day to take out the trash, but then I don't know how often it happens, but there's those, there's those days when you can just dump all kinds of garbage out there and they'll pick it up eventually. Well, you know, when, I know when those days are coming because I start riding down the road and I'm like, man, mattresses and tires, there's toilets, there's stuff everywhere. People have this opportunity, I don't know, once a year, twice a year, just to clean house, just to get rid of the garbage. Friends, the church of Jesus Christ needs to have a dump day like that. We need to haul some stuff to the curb. We need to stop living in this idea that, well, no, I'm just going to be strong and I'm going to be around it and I'm going to show it who's boss and I'm just going to grow and I'm going to get to the point where that's not even a temptation for me anymore. That is foolish. God calls His people here not to, hey, I want you to set the gold on the shelf as a reminder who you used to be. He says, are you really willing to get rid of it? If there's something that you're holding on to that you're not willing to let go of, friend, there's your God. And God's saying to His people, God, God says here in the text that I may know what to do with you. He's saying, are you really willing to repent and to turn? One commentator said it this way, when the Holy Spirit convicts us of any sin... We need to take off whatever is leading us to sin and never put it on again. Friends, there's some things you don't ever need to watch again. There, there's some people you don't need to be around again. And I know the push, boy, well, you know, God's called us to be light in the darkness. How am I going to reach them? I'll spend time. Listen, the light in the darkness yeah, God calls us to be light in the darkness, but so often in the Christian life what we see is we foolishly, stubbornly walk into the darkness and the darkness is a greater witness to the light than the light is to the darkness. What do you need to get rid of? 
Who do you need to stop spending time with? Where do you need to stop going? What do you need to turn away from? What do you need to take to the curb? The awareness of sin should lead to repentance of sin. 1 Peter 5, 8 says it very clearly. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Listen, if you're walking down the streets in Nelson County today and a roaring lion approaches, you don't pet it. You don't snuggle with it. You don't try to tame it. You run! And you get as far away as you can or you're going to be lying lunch. It's going to eat you up. I was watching the news years ago. I'm sure many of y'all remember this. I don't know all the names and stuff, but... these guys who have the show in Las Vegas, and they got the lions, and all the lions are cuddling and they're kissing the lion, weird stuff with the lions. And lo and behold, one of the lions rips a guy apart. Who would have thought that would have ever happen? So somebody jumps the fence at a zoo, and the lion devours them. Who would have thought that would happen? Friends, that's what lions do. And Peter is writing in the context, by the way, to people who were going to be fed to lions. They don't read this instruction, hear this instruction and say, well, you know, lions, they're not that. But no, they're going to watch as family members are taken into a coliseum and are ripped apart for their faith by a lion. So, so what does that say to us about sin? Friends, don't play with it. Don't try to tame it. There's an enemy that wants to eat your lunch today. Be aware and be repentant. But understand this. No no matter what we take to the curb, no matter how repentant we are, if ultimately our faith is resting in what we can do and not in what Christ has done, then then we will fail. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a gospel that says, well, if you just bow and try harder, you'll be okay. So some of you right now, perhaps even as God's convicting you of sin, you're thinking, okay, well, I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to do this. And there are things we need to do, but we need to do them in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, not as a substitute for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see that reminder here in this last portion of the text, which again points us towards this familiar theme, (laughs) Moses as the mediator, who ultimately points us to Christ as our mediator. Point three there in your outline. The only way for us to have a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ. So Moses is the mediator. He's the one that goes before God on behalf of the people. So you may remember the instruction that God gave Moses. And he, he told him that he was to build the tabernacle. And in this tabernacle to be a tent of the meeting. And if you remember that tent was to be right in the middle of the camp. And, and all of the camp was to face towards it so that they could be looking towards the presence of God there in the camp. But notice what happens here. The people have sinned. The the people are separated. Moses now has to go way outside. The text says, far off from the camp. And there he'll he'll have this tent. Now notice the text tells us everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting. But only one could go in it. In fact, the indication here would be even those who went out, they had to set their tents up at a distance. 
from the tent where God and Moses would meet. And they would look onto it, but they couldn't approach it. That they couldn't go past the, the, the doorway to their own tent. That's where they would stand and worship. And they would watch as Moses would go there before God. And the text tells us where, where Moses would, would meet with the Lord as a man speaks with his friend. But what was Moses talking to the Lord about? Well, well, we'll see this as we continue. Moses was interceding on behalf of the people. So, so here's the system. Man sins against God. God said, I'll bless you, but, but you can't be in this relationship with me. But, but, but God still allows the people, in essence, access to him through the mediator Moses. Moses goes before God on behalf of the people. He comes to the people on behalf of God. But the people can't go directly to God. So, so obviously there's flaws, there's holes in this system. If all we have ends at Exodus 33, we're without hope of ever approaching a holy God. But this is pointing us towards something greater. It's pointing us towards our mediator, Jesus Christ. So we have a radically different system today. <laughs> in fact, what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 13 is that Jesus is the one who went outside of the camp. And when he went outside of the camp, he went to the cross. And when he went to the cross, he died a death that you and I deserve. And in exchange for our repentance and faith, He offers us a righteousness that we don't deserve. And this great exchange takes place in the Gospel. Where we see now that, that, that we don't have to look towards Moses, or a prophet, or a pastor, or a priest to go to God on our behalf. But we have direct access to the Father through the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can go to God. We can talk to God as a man talks to his friend. And we can do that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood in righteousness. It's not about us. It's not about what we vow to do. It's about what Christ has done. And that's why we come to this table. Because we need to remember. We are a terribly forgetful people. And so friend, you can hear this word today. And you can take in this word today. And you can even tell other people this word today. And you can say, oh yeah, with... We're saved by faith, not by works. And, and Christ has done it all, and we just need to trust in Him. And then you get up in the morning, and your car won't start. And then you go to work, and you find out the, the paperwork that you thought was filed last week hadn't been filed yet. Now you're going to lose a client. Now you're going to get chewed out. Now things aren't working out so well. And then something else unexpected happens. Then you get an abdominal pain. You got to go to the hospital. And then you start to think this. Maybe I need to be praying more. You know, I haven't been reading my Bible like I should. Maybe if I, if I just get more committed in my faith. You know, I didn't give what I was supposed to give last week. And maybe if I do all these things, maybe all these things wouldn't happen. Friends, that is a works righteousness. That is you saying before a holy God, I can do it. 
Pastor Nick did a great job of calling out some of the, the false things that we hold on to and, and cling to. And, and one that I see so often in the Christian life is this notion that, that, that God helps them who help themselves as if we can help ourselves. <laughs> I understand the heart behind that. It's, you know, get off the couch and do something. But, but friend, in regards to our salvation, there's nothing you can do. And so when we come to this table, we need to ask ourselves, are we truly trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ? Are we trusting in ourselves? Friend, do you realize that one day, one day, and listen to me, that day might be soon for some of us. One day we're going to stand before holy God and we have nothing to plead in and of ourselves. We have but one plea and we have but one hope and it is Jesus Christ and His blood that was shed for us. And if you are trusting in anything else today, listen to me. Turn from it and trust in Christ. We come to this table not, not because this is a substitute for your lunch. You know, a chiclet cracker, a little thimble of juice. <laughs> Now you're looking at your watch. Well, it is lunchtime, Pastor. Hurry up. Now, why do we come to this table? We come to this table. Jesus said, remember to take this bread and remember. Take this cup and remember. Why? Because we are prone to forget. And what do we so often forget? That Jesus paid it all. That now we have direct access to the Father through the Son. That as we sin and we will sin, we are called to repent and turn from it. Yeah, there's stuff we need to get rid of and get away from, but we do that in response to a saving faith. Not because those things will save us. And so in just a moment, I'm going to invite the deacons to come forward. And we're going to transition to this time of response, this time of the Lord's table together. But before I do, I want us all to heed the word that we have before us in 1 Corinthians 11. And the word is this. Let a person examine himself. Then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What does that mean? It means don't handle this flippantly, friend. Don't be sitting there taking this cup and this bread, not even considering it. No, take it as a remembrance, and as you take it, examine yourself first. We give time to do this. And in a moment, the deacons are going to pass out the bread, and you're going to hold on to that bread, and you're going to wait for all of us to, 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 to hear the word and pray and then receive that together. And in that time, we're to examine ourselves. We're to go before God and say, God, what do I need to get rid of? What do I need to repent of? And the Scripture warns us, if you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to let go of some things in your life, then, then don't come to this table. Now hear me, that, that doesn't mean that this table is for people who are perfect and have it all figured out. But it's for people who are trusting in a perfect Christ. So if your hope is anywhere else this morning, well then you need to repent. You need to trust in the Lord. And so with that word, I want to invite our deacons to come forward as we prepare 
to receive the Lord's Supper together. Again, the invitation is there for all who are confessing fathers of Jesus Christ to receive this. If you're not, we invite you to observe as the rest of us do. As the deacons pass out these elements, we're going to worship and sing, and we ask you again, pray, be repentant, confess, trust in Christ, and then you can receive this joyfully because it is truly a reminder to us of the finished work of our Lord Jesus. And it begins with receiving this bread. If you've been with us in our study of Exodus, then you'll recall that the unleavened bread that would be used by God's people, that this bread represents that. And why was it unleavened? It was unleavened because when God delivered His people, there wasn't time for the bread to rise. It was time to go. It was time to trust the Lord. It was time to experience the salvation He offered. And in the same way, friend, today is the day of repentance. Today is the time. This isn't the call to wait until next week to clean your life up. This is the time to trust in the Lord, and He'll do that cleaning in your life. And so the deacons are going to distribute this bread. If you'll take that and hold on to it, I'm going to read the Scripture. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll receive it together. Paul shares this word in 1 Corinthians 11 where he writes, For I received from the Lord, but I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for the finished work of the cross. We thank you that Jesus has died and paid the penalty for our sin. We thank you, Lord, for this reminder today. That, that, that we need to repent. There needs to be fruit of repentance. But, but ultimately that our hope is built on the finished work of Jesus Christ. So in light of that work, Father, would you help us to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name as we take this bread. Amen. We also see at that same meal that Jesus took the cup. And he said this cup too would be symbolic for his followers, his disciples throughout the history of the church because this cup would remind them that it was only through his blood that sin could be atoned for. In fact, the scripture tells us that we are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have that wonderful picture that one day in a new heaven and a new earth, we will be clothed in white together, cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. So again, this cup is a reminder that our hope is not in ourselves, but it's in Christ. And so, again, the invitation is there to examine yourself, to confess, to repent. The deacons will pass out these cups. If you'll hold on to that, we'll read the Scripture Pray and receive these together in just a moment. As we continue in 1 Corinthians 11, we receive this word. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread... And drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Father God, we thank You that we have this opportunity to proclaim 
the return of the Lord. We thank you for this cup. We thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we receive it now with thankfulness in his name. Amen. Well, church family, I want to invite you to stand as the deacons return to their seats. We're going to sing once more in just a moment. Uh, As I mentioned, this is our time of response. If you have questions this morning about the gospel, about church membership, myself, Pastor Nick, Pastor Matt will be around afterwards. We'd love to talk to you more. But before we lift our voices and sing once more, I want to just remind us of this great mediator again that we have in Jesus Christ. We read this from the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 8. Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted by better promises. We have something better than a land flowing with milk and honey. We have a new heaven and a new earth. That is what we look towards and that's what God has promised. And so let's lift our voices and sing and keep that in mind. We hope you'll be back with us this evening as well. Let's lift our voices together.